All right. Well, I'm hoping that uh, as the doors are opened, that uh, our new readers, come listeners, um, have made their way into the Zoom room. I'd like to just start off by saying welcome to our inaugural BPR, Bonner Private Research Investment Briefing. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. If you could see through the screen behind me, you would see that uh, I'm coming to you from uh, the Andes foothills down here in Argentine, Patagonia, but because of the light, uh, the backlight, we had to we had to pull that shut. Uh, you'll notice this is both our first and last briefing uh, of the year. So I guess I should start off by congratulating you all on your unblemished attendance record for 2021. <laughs> uh, right off the top, I just wanted to say that both Dan Denning and Tom Dyson have reached out to me and they send their best wishes uh, for the new year. They're spending the week with their families and in preparing their paid correspondence. So uh, Tom Dyson, our investment director, he has uh, his first briefing in hand and you can expect that this coming weekend. Uh, Dan, who I was just speaking with, uh, is hunkered down up at his uh, bolt hole in Laramie, Wyoming, and he's hard at work on your January issue. So you can expect those uh, within the coming days and weeks. Okay, so we've got a lot to get through uh, in this briefing, and we're going to do our best to deliver as advertised and, and be brief. Um, we want to leave some questions for some time for questions at the end. Uh, I'm going to mod moderate those. Uh, just a couple of quick housekeeping items up top. Uh, if this is your first Zoom meeting, uh, don't worry, this is our first uh, time hosting one. So uh, we've got panelists from four continents. Uh, we've got Bill Bonner, who hopefully is going to be joining us. He's uh, potentially a little tied up at the moment uh, on the farm. Uh, he's over in uh, rural France. We've got uh, Byron King, who is in the Northeast in the US. We've got Rick Rule, who is joining us from Vancouver in British Columbia. Uh, and as I mentioned, I'm down here at the southern tip of the Americas in Argentina. So if we have any technical difficulties, we do just beg your patience uh, while we attend to those. Um, if you would just keep an eye on the um, on the button on your bottom left hand um, corner of your screen, that's the mute button. Uh, just a general, um, just a general mute. Uh, consider it just like turning your cell phone off when you go to the theater or the pictures, uh, as a courtesy to your speakers and also to your fellow guests. Uh, we're, we will have transcripts of this entire uh, presentation that we're going to make available to you all next week. They usually take about a week to turn around. Um, so you can expect those maybe next Wednesday, next Thursday. <clears throat> uh, all right, well, we were gonna go to Bill. Has Bill joined us here? Oh, there I'm you right are. Here. Hello, Bill. How I'm you right doing, here. <laughs> we, we thought you might've been cleaning your, some blood off your hand from a recently slain stag that needed mounting or some uh, such, but. No, uh, no. No, no, All no, right. I'm right here. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, there's probably not a, a lot that I can tell you about Bill that he hasn't uh, already mentioned in the past uh, 20 odd years of daily diary entries, keeping up an impossible schedule as he does. So uh, Bill and Dan have identified, as many of you know, energy as a key component of a trade that they see developing over the next decade uh, and beyond. So we're going to go to Bill first, and he's going to give us a bit of a, a macro background uh, with regards to what he sees as uh, some out of whack markets that uh, he and Dan believe are going to get out of whackier, if that's even a, uh, a terminology. Uh, 
After that, we're going to go over to Rick Rule. I'm sure you all know Rick Rule and Byron King, so I'll be pithy with their uh, introductions. We'll include more comprehensive bios for these two gentlemen in the transcripts, which will be available next week. But uh, in short, he was the organizer and driving force behind the annual Vancouver Resource Investment Conference for a couple of decades. And until last year, where he slipped blissfully into semi-retirement, he was the CEO of Global Resource investment. So Rick's going to join us to talk about capital spending on fossil fuels uh, and its knock-on effect on producers, uh, equity markets, and of course, consumers. Then after that, we'll have Byron King, uh, another perennial overachiever who uh, will be known to most of you, uh, probably from his essay uh, earlier this week in which he was talking about the European situation with regards to natural gas, electric, uh, electricity markets, where prices are going haywire, uh, perhaps a canary in the coal mine, uh, so to speak, for things to come in the US uh, and further abroad. Um, all right, so I think without further ado, I'm going to do like any host should do with a panel like this and uh, get out of your way. Bill, I'll, uh, right. I'll hand it over to you. Everyone just keep your mute on and uh, take it away, Bill. Thanks. Okay, well, this week in my my dailies, I've been looking at these stories that weren't stories last year. These are issues that were too hot for the press to handle or too controversial to report. They were things with stories that were at odds with the elite narrative that they wanted to share with the public. And in short, these were the stories that the press ditched. And uh, you know, I've been speculating in the emails about why that was. And it's because the media has become very different from what it was supposed to be. It's supposed to be reporting on an objective reality, at least as objective as it could be, telling both sides of the story. But now it's become a, a part of the story itself. It, it desires, along with both political parties, the White House, practically all of Congress, the universities, Wall Street, you know, it's part of the narrative that the elite is putting forward. And it means, and it, it says so very clearly, that it wants to change the world according to the plan that it's got. Anyway, though, though that narrative you know, can be broken into agenda items. And those agenda items are what we see in the press all the time. It's that racism is the explanation for what happens in the US. And that the country is a racist country and so on. And then any other hypothesis that explains the behavior of different groups is, well, a racist thing. And it's the, in this set of things, you know, you can't question the Pentagon budget because remember Hillary Clinton said to uh, that uh, Tulsi Gabbard that she was actually a Russian asset when she attempted to do that. And the lockdowns, the masks, the vaccines, they're the only way to deal with the coronavirus issue. There is no other one. And that government spending is the driver of the economy. That, uh, that it's what makes the, makes the economy grow and nothing else. And that white supremacists are trying to undermine our democracy. So anyway, I'm just going down a whole bunch of things which are now taken as gospel by the media. And one of those is that the earth is heating up. Second watch recording on this later. And that there the is. yeah that the effects of this yeah. global you want to do that? Okay. Yeah. 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 you want to go?
Sorry, Bill, I'm just going to step in for one second. Could everybody just uh, head down to the left-hand side of your computer and, and just hit mute, please? It's just a, we can get some background noise, uh, which can uh, just disrupt the speakers and other guests. Sorry to interrupt, Bill. Just mute for everyone and uh, as you were, mate, carry on. Sorry, Bill is now muted. Okay, technical difficulties all over here. But uh, I was just saying that the biggest, the biggest and most dangerous of these agenda items of the press and the, and the elite is the idea that we can switch from his traditional energy sources, fossil fuel, the, the fuel, the stuff that supports 7.8 billion people, and that we can make the switch over rather rapidly and rather seamlessly. And I don't think that's likely to happen. But anyway, this is not the first time that uh, that groups in power have decided to make radical changes. And the wars in religion of religion in Europe were like that. When one group decided that everybody should be Catholic, the other group decided they should all be Protestant. And the death toll was in the millions of that. And then Napoleon decided to unify Europe. And the Napoleonic Wars cost something like five million. And then the biggest one is in recent memory, uh, which was the move to communism and the communist death toll. That is, the, the communists were sure they had a better plan for the way people should live and the way an economy should work. And the result of that was five, was well, estimated about 100 million people dead. And so you have to wonder, what is going to be the result of this great energy transition? Is it going to be much different from those big, big plans, those big ambitious plans that government undertakes? Well, I don't know, but I think it's worth asking the question. And in a news item earlier this week, which I reported on, a fellow who is an activist in energy, he said that he was very annoyed with the gradualist approach taken at the COP26 UN conference. He said he, the way to do it was much more, needed to be much more radical, that we just had to turn the valve off. Well, you can imagine what would happen if you turned off the valve of diesel fuel. In 48 hours, all the shelves would be empty. And in another 48 hours, almost all businesses would go out of business and stop because they wouldn't have fuel, they wouldn't have supplies, they wouldn't have any way to, to do anything. And then in the three or four months that came next, civilization as we know it would come to a halt. It would just stop. It can't run. Everything moves by truck. Everything we eat, everything we wear, it all moves by truck and almost all trucks move on diesel fuel. You just can't turn off the, the, the tap. Well, of course, you know, nobody is nobody except for these, uh, you know, these these uh, radicals is suggesting that we turn off the tap. They're saying we can do it gradually and that we can gradually replace dirty fuel with clean fuel. But clean fuel today supports, by my calculation, it supports about 800 million people at best. And the dirty fuel supports the rest, which is about seven billion. And there's no way, no plausible way in which that those numbers are going to change dramatically over the next few years. So here we are. We're wondering what's going to happen. And at least we're wondering. And so uh, I think I can turn this over to uh, to back to Joel, because uh, we have people here, namely uh, uh, Rick and Byron, who, who could probably wonder a lot better about this. So go ahead. 
All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Bill. Uh, just a, a obvious and quick uh, mention to to click on the mute there. I think we've probably sorted that uh, little technical glitch out. Another uh, quick point is we're going to have a, a few questions at the end, which I'll moderate. We can uh, flick those over to uh, our esteemed panelists. So time permitting. So if you have any questions that you'd like to answer, we have a few in hand already uh, from responses from the email notification for this Zoom. Just drop them in the chat on the right-hand side of your, um, of your screen there, and we'll moderate those through back channels and we'll get to as many as we can after the call, uh, after the presentations. But anyway, I'm gonna get out of Rick's way. And uh, Rick, the floor is yours. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, delighted to be on this inaugural uh, Bonner Private Research Broadcast. I think I got the name right. <clears throat> I'm delighted to follow Bill, who, who always sets a very high philosophical intellectual tone. I want everybody to know that that part's over. Uh, we're going to get away from philosophy and we're going to get down to, uh, if you will, credit. Uh, if my segment had a title, it would probably be Markets While Messy Work. And I think it's appropriate for myself as an investor to begin by thanking the very people that, bought, uh, that uh, Bill was cursing. The uh, media and the politicians have conspired over the last 18 months to make my job as an investor much easier. The interference that has gone on with private markets has meant that coal prices are probably higher than they need be. And oil and gas prices are probably higher than they need be. And electricity prices are higher than they need be. And even the laggard uranium price has doubled, uh, I guess with a little help from Sprott. Uh, Rick, you've gone mute. Yep, you've got yourself on mute there, Rick. Can you hear me now? Yep. Yeah, uh, yes, that must, that must have been an auto mute or something. But anyway, uh, I, I was thanking the powers that be uh, for subsidizing me indirectly by not understanding that markets work. Uh, the International Energy Agency, uh, sort of the go-to for these things, suggests that the incentive price worldwide to produce a barrel of oil is about $60. This is not the lifting cost, this is the total cost, including general and administrative expense, exploration expense, prior year write-downs, social rent, and the cost of capital. So the circumstance that we had immediately post-COVID, where the oil price fell to, well, zero, uh, but for a while at $20 a barrel, necessitated by itself higher oil prices. Those very low oil prices were unsustainable. The industry was unable to make sustaining capital investments and unwilling to make new capital investments. And the consequence was a shortage, a shortage which has now dro driven the oil price and particularly the natural gas price substantially above the incentive cost of production. Normally, in a circumstance like this, markets work, which is to say high prices begin to breed conservation and they bring on additional supplies. But for reasons that we'll begin to discuss, including the disfavor that energy uh, enjoys, if that's the right phrase, with the media and governments, these sustaining capital investments and new capital investments aren't taking place. So prices will, mercifully for me, and unfortunately for mankind, be higher for longer, uh, something that I am very grateful for. Let's, uh, let's take a look at some of these things in order. The first is that particularly in oil and gas, this is a massively capital intensive business. And the capital expenditure takes place in several forms. New project investments, which can be to bring a new offshore oil field on 
measured in the billions of dollars, uh, liquefied natural gas trains in the tens of billions of dollars. These investments aren't taking place. They're not taking place because social rents are high uh, and because political capital that needs to be spent in order to get these things built is simply unavailable. So uh, in terms of our ability to keep up with existing demand, uh, let alone meet higher demand in the future, the investments necessary to cause this to occur aren't occurring. We are living off oil and gas deposits that were identified 40 and 50 years ago and commercialized perhaps 10 years ago. But the truth is that every day you pump an oil field, your business gets smaller. Without the new project investments, you can't maintain production. Even worse are sustaining capital investments. Uh, sustaining capital investments are the investments that uh, are required to keep existing assets producing at current levels. It is estimated right now that the oil and gas industry worldwide is deferring a billion dollars a day worth of sustaining capital investments. The impact of this is fairly obvious. When you don't maintain an oil field, it produces less prolifically. Yesterday, the Mexicans suggested, as an example, that they would no longer export oil because they were going to use it all themselves. The real reason for this is that they have deferred sustaining capital investments in their oil industry for so long that their production has fallen by two thirds. Uh, in other words, they're making a virtue out in of a fact. And this is occurring all around the world. So project expenditures aren't taking place and sustaining capital expenditures aren't taking place. And of course, the consequence of that is that our ability to produce oil and gas on a global basis, with certain exceptions, is falling. The second thing that I think people need to realize in the context of the politics of energy uh, is the increased cost of capital. Much is made about the technology in the United States that allowed us to produce unconventional gas, as an example, but also oil from shales, three-dimensional seismic, fracking, all that kind of stuff. The great unsung advantage that the oil industry enjoyed 10 years ago was an extraordinarily low cost of capital. Equity priced at two times net present value access to junk debt markets uh, that was extremely cheap because the rapid production growth and the rapid free cash flow growth that the oil industry enjoyed 10 years ago attracted capital to the extent that the real cost of capital for many companies was sub-zero. Uh, and this led to a capital expenditure boom. All that has turned around now. Bank financing is less and less available as the big thinkers constrain the bank's ability to finance energy. Equity capital is less available, both as a consequence of the COVID uh, uh, price decline, but also as a consequence of the political disfavor that oil finds itself in. So the higher cost of capital is also constraining the same capital investments that we talked about before. And finally, increased social rents. These social rents can be in the form of regulation, uh, like the People's Republic of California, uh, not allowing any more drilling in Los Angeles County, or it could take place in carbon taxes or other forms of taxes. The fact is that there's only so much money to go around in the energy business. And if more of it gets consumed in social rent, say carbon tax or income tax or regulation or compliance, there's less available to maintain production. <laughs> All of these things, uh, deferred project expenditure, higher cost of capital, increased social rent, conspire and combine to reduce supply. 
And in an era of reduced supply, when demand, despite the big thinkers' best wishes, isn't declining, means that you have higher prices and you have higher prices for longer. Again, mm -hmm. ironically, I thank the big thinkers for this. Uh, do we need uh, hydrocarbon energy? Do we need coal? Do we need oil? Uh, do we need nuclear? The answer to, to all of that is yes. One thing that the big thinkers don't think about is that 1.2 billion people on Earth have no access to electricity at all. Uh, another billion and a half to two billion people have <clears throat> access to intermittent or unaffordable energy. All of the people who live in these places that experience energy poverty <clears throat> want to live like you and I do. And one of the great things that we've accomplished as a species in the last 30 years <clears throat> is to rapidly increase the living standards of the bottom half of humanity on an economic scale. That's going to continue. And as it continues, demand for all forms of energy, <clears throat> including politically incorrect hydrocarbon energy, is going to increase. Many people don't know, uh, as an example, that the largest year on record for coal demand worldwide, uh, despite Anhala and Greta, was 2021. Uh, despite the fact that the big thinkers don't like coal, uh, the peons, when they walk into a room and hit the switch, want the lights to go on. The consequence of that is that despite the bad press that coal gets, the largest demand for coal that we've ever experienced was 2021. And I think this continues. Uh, it, it continues because there are conflicting values. When you look at the policy statements uh, on carbon, one of the things you learn is that these political promises can't be kept. They simply can't be kept. In the first instance, in terms of a carbon budget, uh, in the West, we would prefer to look at the problem on a national basis. Of course, China and India would like to look at it on a per capita basis, which is to say emissions per capita. And in the West, we also uh, would like to ignore historic carbon loadings, which is to say that most of the CO2 in the atmosphere, whether or not you think that CO2 is harmful or not, most of the CO2 in the atmosphere has come about as a consequence of historic emissions in the West. And the question becomes then, is the West willing and is the West able to subsidize carbon emissions at other places in a way that is actually fair, just, and equitable on a per capita basis? The answer to that, of course, is no. Uh, so the promises that you're seeing around carbon are just that. They're political promises. They aren't pro uh, promises that are uh, able to be kept. The consequence of all of this, I think, sets up the trade that Bill has discussed fairly well. Uh, our own calculations suggest that, as an example, in the oil and gas industry, the net present value uh, of oil producers <clears throat> is such that they appear to be discounting $45 a, bar a barrel oil uh, in a $70 world. And it would appear, given the level of sustaining capital investments, unless the world suffers from a severe recession or a depression in the next five years, that these high prices are going to be with us simply as a function of uh, deferred reinvestment, simply as a function of supply constraints. Uh, and I think this sets up a really interesting uh, investment opportunity. If you have an industry <clears throat> that's priced as though they were selling the product for $45 a barrel, when in fact the industry is selling the product for $70 a barrel, uh, or if you convert that to natural gas, 
the industry is priced like the gas price was three dollars uh, per million BTU, where in fact the price is five dollars and fifty or six cents in the U.S. and six dollars and much 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 higher in Europe. You set up a very interesting uh, investment circumstance. Similarly, in uranium, although the uranium price has increased from eighteen dollars a pound to forty-five dollars a pound. The International Energy Agency suggests that the fully loaded cost to produce a pound of uranium worldwide is between 60 and $65 and gaining rapidly, <clears throat> which means that although we're in a $45 world, we can fairly accurately say that we're heading into a $70 a pound future. And this is all more likely than not to occur. Certain, no, but more likely than not to occur. One of the things that I've learned in investing is there is no such thing as certainty. You speculate on probabilities. And the probability is, as a consequence of the disfavor that energy industries find themselves in, and as a consequence of the changing cost of capital, that it is one of the few sectors that you can look at in terms of pricing with a reasonably high degree of certainty going forward. So again, as an energy investor, I thank the political class. Uh, I thank the media. Uh, I thank the general uh, disinformation because the consequence of that is that may, they make my job as an investor and a speculator much easier. Uh, before I sign off, I'd like to make an unabashed uh, commercial pitch. Uh, any of the listeners here who care what I think about their specific investments, rather the energy industry at large, can go to a website, ruleinvestmentmedia.com, Enter your natural resource stocks, including your oil stocks, and I'll personally rank them one to 10. And I'll include, if you mention charts, a uh, 110-year commodity chart by Goldman Sachs that talks about just how cheap commodities are relative to other asset classes going back 110 years. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for your attention. And Bill, thank you for identifying what I think is one of the easiest investment themes in front of us for the next five years. Thank you, Rick. I, I just wanted, I noticed a question popped up, which I thought is an interesting question. I kind of know what you mean. When you say social rent, that seems to me to, to include a lot of different things. Do you want to you explain more about what you mean by that? <laughs> I'll, I'll try and do it politely. Uh, I would define social rent as uh, mostly tax and regulation. Uh, as an example, Los Angeles City Council has... Uh, forbade new drilling in Los Angeles County. That's in effect a social rent. If you are an owner of oil reserves in Los Angeles County, and you are now unable to drill and produce those, your wealth has in fact been, has been um, you know, confiscated by the state. Uh, if we put in place, as the People's Republic of California has done, carbon taxes, what that means is that some of the free cash flow that comes from hydrocarbon production goes to the state. You'll notice too, Bill, in the case of social rents around the oil and gas business, that they're not revenue neutral, uh, which is to say that the increased revenue that they get from carbon rents don't reduce the taxes that anybody else pays. So I define social rents as the whole set of circumstances uh, that have to do with uh, political control of energy industries. It could be, as an example, the refusal by the Biden administration and the Obama administration before to uh, allow the continuation of the Keystone Pipeline, which would have brought 2 million barrels of Canadian oil a year into the U.S. markets. Uh, the fact that that pipeline uh, was not allowed to proceed raises the price of 
crude oil to U.S. refiners and hence raises both the price and lowers the supply of gasoline to American consumers, precisely probably the intent of most of the big thinkers. Yeah, I guess you could go even more broadly in the social direction by saying you're at a cocktail party in New York City and you tell people that uh, your business is drilling for oil and all of a sudden your social status declines dramatically. Uh, Bill, you've known me for a long time and you know that my social status would be difficult to diminish from here. Uh, but if you want to have fun uh, as an investment analyst, the best way to test how unpopular you can be is get on the po podium and talk about uranium. If you talk yeah. about uranium, the audience isn't merely bored by you. They're suggesting that you're championing uh, Fukushima, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Three Mile Island. Uh, from a contrarian's point of view like mine, it doesn't get better than that. The idea that your investment thesis doesn't just bore people, they're hostile to it, uh, <laughs> means that you're extremely lonely. And in my experience as a contrarian investor, being lonely is a very good thing. And as you suggest, uh, as an energy investor, um, given that loneliness makes me happy, I'm extremely happy. <laughs> better, better, to be, better to be lonely and wealthy, I think, in that circumstance than, Rick, than uh, uh, poor amongst many friends. Uh, we're, we're, as, as usual, Rick's put a huge amount of uh, information onto the table there. Uh, thank you very much for that, Rick. And as, uh, as a consequence, there's been a flood of questions coming to the uh, chat panel on the side. We're, we're going to try and get to a bunch of those um, at the end, time permitting. Um, we're just kind of uh, putting those together uh, sort of in some back channels at the moment. So we'll, we'll get to as many of those as we possibly can. But I want to get uh, now to Mr. Byron King, who's been waiting on the sidelines. Uh, Byron, can you hear us there? Are you ready to take the, the podium? I can Virtual hear you just fine. Uh, thank you, Joel. Uh, thank you, Rick. Thank you, Bill Bonner, of course. And congratulations, Bill, on this new Bonner private research uh, project you are embarking on, and also to the attendees and listeners out there, thank you so much for continuing a subscription to Bill Bonner's private research letter. Um, you know, the, the whole idea was to, um, you know, kind of liberate from, you know, certain constraints in the publishing industry. And, you know, Bill uh, wanted to set up a whole new way of doing things. And you, and you the readers and the subscribers and the listeners and watchers out there, you're, you're part of it. So thank you for that. Um, I'm Byron King. Uh, some of you, I see some names here on the screen. Uh, some of you are familiar names, have known you over the years. Some of you are new. Uh, perhaps you saw an article that I wrote and that Bill ran yesterday called uh, Germany Marches Towards Its Energy, Stalingrad. And I discussed, you know, the Battle of Stalingrad in World War II, you know, march in, capture the city, get surrounded, be destroyed. Um, you know, and, and I, I use that as a metaphor for what's going on in Germany today. Although it's not just Germany, hello, you know, uh, you know, Germany is, is uh, you know, oh, we're green, we're, you know, we've got a green party and everything else. And people say, well, this is great. This is wonderful. We're going to decarbonize and everything. Okay, but how do, how do you plan to keep the lights on? And that gets into points that Rick uh, Rule was making. And for everybody who's on here, you know, you're, you're sitting at a desk, you're sitting at a computer, a laptop, whatever, you're hooked up to the internet, or maybe to a hard wire, maybe it's a a Wi-Fi or something like that, you are absolutely a product of the modern age. And the modern age is absolutely an evolution of the Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution was all about boiling steam and burning carbon. And we spent 250 years doing it. 
And the idea that we can, as Bill mentioned, you know, just turn the valve and make it all go, it is absolutely ridiculously stupid, crazy, lunatic, suicidal. You're going to kill yourself and a lot of other people uh, in the process, uh, which is why I used the Stalingrad metaphor. You know, I mean, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's absolutely nuts what Germany has done to back itself into a corner, close its nuclear plants, you know, allegedly close its coal plant, but still burn the lignite coal, which is, you know, half the energy content and three times the, uh, the air emissions. Uh, and then, uh, you know, just, you know, they, they, they're importing Russian gas and they say, oh, that's, that's, you know, Russian gas, there's something wrong with Russian gas. Nothing, gas is gas, it's just a molecule. Yesterday, Vladimir Putin um, really spoiled the party. He announced that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is filled with natural gas and they're ready to, you know, as the expression goes, turn their valve if the Germans are ready to turn a valve on their end and receive it. Um, but, uh, but, but again, it's all, it's all locked up in politics and it's, and it's really stupid politics, although it's profitably stupid politics. Um, as Rick says, you know, uh, we, people are gonna make a lot of money off of this. Uh, Joel mentioned that I'm in the Northeast United States. I'm actually in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, I am sitting as we speak, I am sitting no more than 120 feet from one of the great hydrocarbon deposits of the world. It's called the Pittsburgh Coal Seam. And it's right underneath uh, my feet by about 120 feet where I'm at. And, uh, and the Pittsburgh Coal Seam was one of the coal seams that really made Pittsburgh, you know, the steel city and all that. Uh, you know, people used coal. Before they used coal, they used wood, trees is to make charcoal. And, uh, you know, pit cities are where they are for a reason. Pittsburgh is where it is for a reason. It's right on the river. It's right next to the coal seams, lots of trees. Uh, lots of transportation, bring in the iron ore and you, make, you can make steel and you can, you know, you can build an industrial civilization, uh, which is, you know, where we are. We are, we are drinking from wells today that we did not dig. People a hundred years ago, uh, you know, uh, kind of invented things and, and set things up. Uh, yeah, and again, the idea that, 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 that this is all bogus, this is all, it was all wrong. It was some sort of big mistake. You're really asking to rewrite history. And I think it's a form of modern insanity. It's a form of mass insanity to deny the history of how you got to where you are uh, because the idea that you're gonna change it all is completely, totally crazy. Um, I, I was looking for something, you know, what can, I, what can I do to try to drive the point home? And part of it is that, um, that, that, uh, that everything that you do is, is, is a product of a hydrocarbon economy. I mean, the chair you sit in, the, the, the computer you're working on, the, you know, the food that you ate this morning or the lunch you're gonna have this afternoon. I mean, if it weren't for the hydrocarbons, it wouldn't be there, you wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be here. Uh, one particular aspect that I, that I wanna focus on is that you know, when people say, oh, if we could only get rid of automobiles and go to electric vehicles, you know, we could really solve a lot of problems. Well, actually, no, you can't because it's really a small fraction of the world's carbon comes out of the tailpipe of cars. Uh, you know, um, probably 15% of the world's energy is used to grow and process food. 20% of the world's energy is used to make cement. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean there's no electric way to make cement. People have been trying it for a hundred years. You must make cement in a kiln and you must use some sort of a heat source like coal or natural gas to make it work. 30%, probably 33% of the world's 
energy is used to smelt and melt and refine metals. So you're not gonna have an electric car, at least not one that has any steel in it, unless you can heat up a metal to you know, 1700 degrees and, and cast it into something else. You're not gonna have big poles that you can put a windmill on, uh, big steel poles, unless you can heat that metal and, uh, and, and, and turn it into something. You're not, gonna have, um, you're not gonna have solar panels unless you can make polysilicon, which involves melting silicon. And uh, you know, to glass levels of melting over 2000 degrees, which brings me to a, to a concept that, it's an easy concept to understand, but nobody ever talks about it. The only truly meaningful way to get high levels of heat in an industrial economy are, are with uh, uh, carbon-based fuels. You could say, well, why do I need high levels of heat? Well, I just told you, you can't do metals without high levels of heat. You've got to melt them. You can't do ceramics without high levels of heat. You've got, and that means computer chips. That means the bricks on your house. That means, uh, that means the plates on your, on, your, on your dinner table, but mostly computer chips. Can't do computer chips without high heat. Well, how do you, how do you get those high levels of heat? In some cases, you can do it with you know, electric arcs or whatever, but you, you just can't do it without hydrocarbon. I mean, how, do you, how, do, how, do, how do they make steel? Well, with a blast furnace. Well, how do they make a lot of other steel? With electric arc furnaces, but that's steel that's already been made. And all you're doing is remelting it and turning it into something else. You can't do high heat without uh, hydrocarbons. And the idea that you're going to do away with hydrocarbons means you're going to do away with your metals industry, your, your ceramics industry. You're not going to have any cement, okay? Because as I said, you, if you, unless you can take limestone and burn it down to lime you know, in a kiln um, uh, in, with, in some other way, that won't happen. And I, and I have news for you, there's no other way. People have tried, uh, people are still trying. Um, Bill, Bill mentioned diesel, diesel fuel. You know, when you, come, when you take a barrel of oil, it depends where the barrel comes from, whether it's from this oil field or that oil field, or maybe on, a, you know, on a, the average, about 15% of that barrel of oil is diesel that you can distill into diesel fuel. Diesel being diesel that could go into a truck or a slightly different grade of diesel you call it jet fuel, you put it in, you make your airplanes go. Um, but only 15% of a barrel, you know, is, is, is useful for that. If you turn the valves, like the man told Bill, you turn those valves and the, and the barrels go away, there goes your diesel, there goes your jet fuel, there goes all your other feedstock as well for all, for, you know, there goes your asphalt, there goes your plastics, there goes, uh, there goes the things that, that make most people's clothes. Maybe you wear 100% cotton. Okay, good for you. Uh, but uh, uh, most people wear some sort of, you know, polyester fiber, uh, you know, somewhere in their clothing. I mean, you know, I mean, how, do, how does this work? Well, this is part of the whole craziness of the, uh, of the, of, of this drive to decarbonize, defossilize and everything. It's just, it's a, it's a thoughtless uh, process that's just worshiping at some label and some slogan which is not to say that there aren't environmental problems in the world. Of course there are, you know, there are, I know there, are. we all know there are, uh, but it's just being addressed in such a simplistic manner. And again, getting back to what friend Bill mentioned at the beginning, it's all part of this media narrative. It's this, this, it's this disinformation, this ill information created an, an entire uh, ill-informed population. Everybody from, and I'll even say her name, sorry, Greta, you know, Greta, the Swedish, Thunberg there, you know, all the way down to, you know, to the neighbor down the street, you know, with the climate action now, 
you know, sign out in front of their house. Yeah, climate action now signed in front of their house, you know, with, with two cars in their garage and food in their refrigerator. And it's like it, the, the hypocrisy just just staggers me. Um, and, and, you know, I, I've, uh, you know I've, I've said my piece and all I can say is I agree with Rick. It's an incredibly good investment opportunity uh, when people are, are just going crazy. If you can just sort of screw your head back on straight, you know, plug your brain in right, understand what's going on and find, you know, the undervalued items and, 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 and collect them over time. And, uh, you know, with a certain amount of patience and a certain amount of good luck, you know, you know you'll, you'll come out on the other side. Nobody here on this call, I don't think, you know, can change the world. If you can, let me know. Uh, uh, you know, all, all I can do is, you know, write, write an article every now and then and, um, uh, you know, and, and, and do some investing and try to try to get around it uh, and, and really try to keep my head screwed on tight. Um, I, I could talk more, but I won't because we have a lot of questions from the audience. And I'm going to hand it back to Joel, who I think is going to MC it or unless Rick or Bill have something to say, but I'll, I'll go mute and just go for the questions. Thank you, everybody. Again, thank you so much for being part of Bill Bonner's new uh, new project. I'm really looking forward to watching this and being part of this as it, as it goes forward. So thank you. Yeah, th thanks a lot, uh, Byron. And uh, we should uh, just make a little mention of that, that part of the idea of, of this new venture, which, um, which we're using um, the, the ready fire aim mantra to, to help guide um, is exactly this is is the the idea of being able to connect more directly with readers and to focus more on the kinds of ideas that you've just heard uh, Rick Byron and Bill uh, articulate so very well. So uh, just wanted to say one very quick thing off the top. For I'm not sure Byron if you remember this, but when I first met Byron uh, back in the early 2000s, I mentioned to him after he told us that he was living up in Pittsburgh. I mentioned to him that I was interested in the kinds of um, oil discoveries that he's so very familiar with. And Byron is just that kind of guy that within a couple of weeks, he had sent me uh, an, a personal invitation to come up with him and to go to yep. uh, yeah. Colonel Drake's uh, first commercially, uh, yeah, uh, uh, commercially viable well in the US. And we sat there and uh, Byron showed us a, uh, a, a dynamite fracking um extravaganza so uh so anyway byron thanks very much for that that's just the, the kind of the guy first that, that, article uh, i wrote for whiskey and gunpowder <laughs> was in 2004 the, the title was the ghost of colonel drake and you can yep. still find it on deep deep on the internet somewhere yeah i remember yep. i remember Fa that it's a beautiful day in titusville pennsylvania fantastic stuff byron thanks very much mate um we've got as as you mentioned we've got tons of questions that have come in from uh, from our readers. We're going to get to as many of them as, po as we possibly can with the short amount of time that we have uh, remaining. I saw one come in um, asking, why does American leadership listen to the crazy advice of former bartenders like Congressman, woman, AOC? I'm just going to take that one personally and say it's actually fresh person, Congress menstruating person, AOC, if we could just use correct uh, gender pronouns uh, and labeling, uh, please. Now, uh, we have one, uh, I just wanted to ask for Bill, uh, you've written recently, maybe about, um, bless you, about Janet Yellen um, at a recent Gab Fest, talking about the $150 trillion that it was going to take to transition to this new pie in the sky kind of fairy tale uh, economy, I guess a lot of people are wondering, 
two parts to that question. And the first is, where does all this, this freshly inked $150 trillion come from? And how does that affect the value of the existing currency units to speak to the other side of your energy trade? Do you want to give us a little bit of background to kick us off there? Well, uh, Joe, I have no idea where that $150 trillion uh, estimate came from. It sounds so ludicrous that that anybody would say that without laughing is, amer is amazing to me. But nevertheless, it is true, as you say, freshly minted is the word. I mean, there is, uh, if you, uh, the United States government currently saves no money, <laughs> no money at all. In fact, they spend, you know, a trillion, a trillion more, two trillion more than they bring in. And that, by the way, is true of almost all major governments. All major governments in the world are running a deficit. So the only possible way that they could fund a transition of any sort, even if it's $500, is by printing up the money. And so that, that brings in the second part of this whole thing, because it's one thing to call for a transition of the very thing that Western civilization, in fact, world civilization is built on. That's one thing. But then to do it by destroying the currency, which is the other thing it's built on, you know, we need stable money. We need predictable returns on money. These projects, it takes 10 years to build a nuclear reactor. It takes uh, decades to change from one energy source to another. These are very long-term pipelines. We've seen how long it takes to get a pipeline approved, financed, built, put into production. These are huge long-term things involving millions and billions of dollars, and they don't get undertaken if the value of money itself is in doubt. So we have a couple of things going on. The government actively trying to discourage production of the one thing that our civilization most needs, and at the same time, destroying the money that would be required to make a transition to anything. I mean, we couldn't even continue producing, even if the government were trying to discourage the production, its money is by, de by devaluing the dollar, by put putting in question the, the future value of the dollar. It means that investors are gonna be very wary of making long-term commitments of capital. And Rick probably has seen this more than, you know, in, 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 seen it firsthand, but I'm just guessing as a theoretical matter, people are not gonna be willing to invest much money in a, in a technology that is is frowned upon, an industry that they're trying to stop, a a, a, a product that they're trying to erase from the world itself. So, it, you know, the whole thing is working. I, I liken it to an intersection, the most dangerous intersection in capitalism, you know, where the government has a big, big plan that's going to cost $150 trillion. And meanwhile, the other direction comes as huge hyperinflation or inflation of some sort. We don't know how hyper it will be. But where these two meet, guess who's on the beat there? Guess who's directing traffic? Why, well, it's the U.S. government. So, you know, what could go wrong with that? I mean, <laughs> I think it's going to be a disaster if, and by the way, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen, but it's certainly setting up a very dangerous situation. Did you want to comment on that there, Rick? Uh, there was too much to comment on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't have anything to add except to say that uh, <clears throat> from my own point of view, people listening to the call probably have a duty to themselves and their families to take advantage of this as opposed to being taken advantage by this. 
-hmm. where the money comes from is pretty obvious. They're looking at a redistribution, which means from you to them. Uh, and probably you can't influence their decision very much. So what you need to do, I think, is to uh, defend yourself uh, individually, whether or not that means uh, identifying with the probability that increasing printing uh, of existing currency units makes each individual currency unit less valuable, meaning that you defend yourself by some holdings in precious metals, as an example, uh, and or you understand that energy policy is unsustainable given the way we live and the consequence of that is that you invest in energy markets. I think the upshot of this isn't uh, a whole bunch of political action uh, from the crowd listening to this phone call. I think the only thing that you can do is defend yourself, act rationally, uh, and frankly, enjoy it. Uh, one of the things I always like about Bill is he describes these coming catastrophes with a broad smile. Uh, which I think is a much better way to react than, you know, sort of the rants that you see coming out of Congress. Yeah, excellent. Thank, thanks for that, Rick. A, a little uh, just follow-on question with that, just getting it slightly more specific with regards to uh, investables there. We have a question from uh, an audience member who asks, uh, could your experts touch on oil and gas pipelines as kind of the toll roads of the oil industry and your sort of general outlook for them uh, in the year ahead in 2022? If it's directed to me, I need to say that the pipeline business is an absolutely superb business. It's a localized monopoly. And it's really to understand, easy to understand. You put goop in one side and you take goop out another side. And so you need to familiarize yourself with the quantities of goop necessary to move over time and the net present value of moving it. The bad news around the pipelines is that over the last 20 years, with interest rates declining, people bought pipelines based on yield rather than net present value. Uh, people treated pipelines as though they were unending sources of free cash. And of course, when the goop on one end runs out, the free cash runs out too. Uh, and pipelines, as a consequence of that, are unusually dependent on interest rates. If the interest rate goes up, the pipeline's cost of capital increases while the capitalized value of their distributions decrease. So although I love the pipeline business, I'm not presently a pipeline investor because I think the next direction in interest rates is likely higher, uh, which puts me between a rock and a hard place, which is not a place I'd like to be. Let me add on All to right. that. Uh, quickly. Go on, Barn. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've, all, I've long liked pipelines as, as investment vehicles. What I'd say right now, though, at the end of 2021, something you have to be you know, aware of, at least in your investing, because maybe, maybe it's an attraction, maybe it's a, a detraction to investing in pipelines. In the last two years, U.S. domestic oil output has dropped by over, well over 2 million barrels a day, just because, you know, demand crashed, you know, when during the lockdowns and all that, less, you know, less gasoline at the pumps, less jet fuel, less everything, you know, you know, less material being refined. And so a lot of people who owned oil wells, you know, they turned their valves and shut them in. A lot of the stripper wells, the low production, they, they plugged them full of concrete and went away. Um, you know, it's not there. So that there's, there's 2 million barrels a day, not there anymore in the United States. So what we're seeing now with some pipelines, not, not all by any means, 
but some pipelines uh, have seen dramatic uh, drops in their throughput. Um, coming out of the Permian Basin of West Texas, those pipelines are about 95% full. I mean, they, they have no problem filling their space. Other pipelines in other places are 50% full. And so those, those operators are scrambling. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a stock picker's market. If you, if, you, if you wanna get around into some of these pipelining companies and midstreaming companies and things like that, yeah, but you know, take a good look at you know, what are they doing? You know, I mean, is it, are, they, are they serving an area that's in a, a permanent state of, energy, of uh, production decline or are they in an area that, you know, where, where things will go back, uh, get back better maybe in the next, you know, uh, you know year or two? Aaron, that uh, actually feeds into another question uh, that we had uh, mailed in a couple of days ago, and it has to do with uh, geopolitical uncertainty, particularly with the kind of um, the aversion to uh, carbon fuels, carbon-based fuels, uh, so evident uh, in the current administration. Um, as we have that sort of couple of million barrel gap, I'm sitting down here in uh, in Argentina, for example, slightly to my north, uh, Peru has just elected a, a rather far left uh, nationalist president just over the other side of the Andes. Uh, Chile has elected their youngest ever president, 35 years old. Goodness, what could go wrong there? Uh, a student activist who is, uh, you know, these are, these are countries that have huge mining deposits, obviously Chile with copper, um, you know, a, a lot of natural resources that are being held up in what uh, you know? What the developed world might consider hostile environments. Um, do you want to speak a little bit to the geopolitics of as it pertains to energy? And I, I know you touched on that earlier in your uh, in your essay earlier this week. But just kind of expand on that uh, on, on that general topic a little bit. Okay, uh, we are. Uh, it, it's 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 quite intriguing to see the you know as you mentioned a student activist. You know who becomes the president of a of a of an important country. I mean, uh, you know, countries like Peru and Chile. I mean, much of the world's you know uh, uh, exportable copper comes from those two places. You know, if they screw it up, they're not just screwing up their own, their own country. They're they're screwing up you know the global trade and everything downstream that uses copper. So um, ideally, you you can elect a student activist, but you want that person to be educable, if not coachable, by you know wiser heads. Who can say, listen, you know, you, here's what you can say, you know, in front of the crowd. Here's what you have to do, you know, in the back room. That's that. That's how politics works, you know. Uh, meanwhile, getting back to something Rick said earlier, that you know, that the literally billions of people in this world either have access to no electricity or very minimal amounts, and they want to do better. Uh, the world is on the cusp of a carbon tsunami, uh, and it's not going to be a carbon tsunami because people in North America and Western Europe you know, are gonna jump in their cars and, and drive around and burn up lots of gasoline. No, it's because people in place in India and in Indonesia and in Brazil in South Africa, and you, you know, you name it across, because they want to have, you know, a higher standard of living and the fast, quick, uh, uh, you know, way, proven way to get there is to burn hydrocarbons. They're gonna burn their coal, they're gonna burn their natural gas, they're gonna burn their oil, they're gonna burn down their forests if, uh, you know, if, if, if they have to. To stay warm and to cook their food and to and to do what they want, and so uh, you know in the 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 ethereal realms, you know the COP26 crowd, the Davos crowd who want to control the world, you know they they have a job on their hands, uh, explaining to literally hundreds of millions of people, if not billions, 
you know, in countries literally across the planet, why they should, you know, stay at the level they are and not, you know, not emit carbon into the air. Good luck with that is all I can say. Um, uh, it's, I'm glad I don't have, I don't, glad I don't have uh, that job. Uh, on a more, um, at a more granular level, this isn't quite granular, but uh, uh, what we've seen in the last, let's say, year or so, 2021, as we're wrapping up the year, is, uh, is, is, is a lot of carbon moving around the world in the form of liquefied natural gas. The, the LNG market illustrates this really well. Um, last winter, you know, as Texas was freezing and all this sort of thing, you know, uh, China, South Korea, Japan, they were importing all the LNG they could lay their hands on, you know, and they, and they still are. Uh, for months and months and months, the LNG market has been focused on Asia. Ship it to Asia because that's where that's where you get the highest price. And I mentioned earlier, I'm in Pittsburgh. I'm, I'm 150 feet from the from the Pittsburgh coal seam straight down. I'm also about 9,000 feet away from the Marcellus uh, Shale, which is again straight down below me, and, and probably about 11,000 feet below me is the uh, the Utica Shale. Two prolific gas production production uh you know sources in the northeast they pump literally not not where i am in pittsburgh because you know politics and whatever but not too far down the road not too far down route 19 uh in washington county they produce shale gas from the marcellus and, and, and from the utica they produce it to the service they put in a pipeline they send it to cove point maryland where it gets turned into lng and gets put on these big tankers with the golf ball things on the top you know because it's big insulated thermos tankers and, the, and they, once they're on the ocean, they can go anywhere in the world. For months, they were heading down through the Panama Canal and over to Asia. Lately, in the last about month or so, those cargos have all been going to Europe because the price of gas, LNG gas in Europe is, is 12 to 13 to 14 times higher than what it is in North America. They're even outbidding you know, the Chinese. For a while, the Chinese were paying any price. Now the uh, Europeans are paying any price you know, uh, to, 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 to literally to fill their pipes you know, for the coming winter. So there's some crazy politics going on here with crazy arbitrage, op, uh, you know, uh, uh, opportunities. Um, and, and it gets back to, you know, to, to the wellheads, to the pipelines, to the LNG, to global trade, gets back to the value of money, uh, the value of your dollars or what have you. Um, and uh, yeah, I, f I feel like we could possibly have a, a, an entire uh, an entire energy briefing just devoted just to uh, geopolitical uh, uh, uncertainty and its uh, its knock-on effects with price. Thanks a, uh, a lot, Brian. Uh, sorry, Byron. I just have to say we're we're bumping up against our uh, our hour allotment here, so uh, I know there's still a lot of questions. Um, we might be able to um, put those to our our panelists um, and uh, send out some answers along with the transcripts that we'll try and get to you guys. Uh, next week, I guess uh, in future briefings, one of the lessons we'll learn here is maybe we need to leave a little bit more time for, for questions at the end. Uh, just one last one before I'll, um, I'll ask for some closing remarks from our panelists, just because it's been a, uh, something of a common question. What do you guys think? And I, perhaps we can go um, around the panel in, in reverse order, Byron, Rick, and then to you, Bill. What, what do you expect to happen to um, energy stock prices, specifically in an overall uh, market downturn, uh, particularly a severe one? Well, who are you, who are you asking? Oh. Well, we could take the whole panel if you want to do it in... in Byron, Rick, uh, and then Bill, you want to? 
I'll, I'll go. I'll, I'll kick off. Um, uh, if if we have a severe out, uh, if we have a severe downturn, and the prices of you know well-run companies with good strong reserve base and aggressive uh, replacement uh, programs go, go go out there and you know if you have some cash, take advantage and buy them up. Uh, if they if if they're big guys with with you know solid dividends, you know the Exxon Mobiles or the Chevrons of the world. You know, I mean. A year ago today, or a year ago, you know, in November 2020, uh, you know, you could buy ExxonMobil for probably half what it's worth now, uh, and and the 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 dividend was something like over 10%. Exxon's still a good buy, you know, although you know, big big company and everything else. Smaller companies in the same way. It's all about management. It's all about uh, you know what assets do they hold, and are they are they finding and replacing reserves? But a downturn is your chance, investor chance to. Uh, find some great ideas and scoop them up and put, you know, put them away for a better time. So I would start by saying uh, a liquidity-based market decline like 2008 takes no prisoners. Uh, everything goes down, the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you think that we're heading into a liquidity-related decline like 2008, uh, understand that everything sells off. But a market isn't a source of uh, I mean, it isn't a living, breathing creature. It's a facility. It's a place that you buy and sell pieces of businesses. And the businesses that get too cheap in the market recover more quickly than other things do. Uh, precisely as Byron has said, if you think of a market crash or a bear market, in fact, as a sale, and if you think that sales are good things, which is to say, if you want to increase your exposure to a certain sector like energy, for you, if you've kept some liquidity, sales are good. Uh, I <laughs> I don't necessarily want to profit off of other people's misery, but the truth is that people seem to be delivering that misery unto themselves with increasing frequency. Uh, and if we have a circumstance that's reminiscent of 2008, uh, I hopefully will have both the cash and the courage to take advantage of that circumstance as opposed to being taken advantage of by the circumstance. I would note too that in terms of investing, you need to understand the dichotomy between price and value. Uh, most investors pay slavish attention to share prices because it's easy information to obtain and it feels spendable. But money is made on the delta between price and value. Price information is of no use to you if you don't have an opinion as to value. And if you think as a consequence of a market decline or a bear market that a piece of a business is selling for less than it's worth, you should buy it by contrast. Uh, if you're concerned about the value relative to the price, that you should avoid it. Uh, understand that markets are facilities and you need to take advantage of that facility rather than have your emotions take advantage of you. Yeah, and, and I don't have much to add to that. Remember, we're what we're trying to do here at Bonner Private Research is to avoid the madness of crowds. And right now, the crowds are mad about certain stocks, the stock market generally, but particularly not about energy stocks. They're mad about uh, about Amazon and Netflix and those FANG stocks that just uh, this week went over a total capital market capitalization of $11 trillion. So in the next crash, which is sure to come, they are the ones that are going to sell off most. And the energy stocks are going to go down with them, but they're going to be relatively much safer in the downswing and much better buys at the bottom. So, uh, as, you know, as Rick says, we, we, we keep our powder dry and wait for the opportunities to come.
And I guess we're at the close here. So I want to want to thank uh, Byron and Rick for joining us. And they've given us a lot to think about. And uh, many thanks to you, too. Thank you. Thanks all. All right. I think we'll uh, we'll probably wrap it up there at just four minutes over the hour, which is, I think, pretty good for uh, having condensed so much valuable information from uh, the aforementioned panelists. Uh, we look forward to having many more of these types of, uh, of forums, of discussions, podcasts, etc., uh, in the year forward, and just to uh, just to echo the sentiments of uh, of the panelists, uh, thanks everyone for joining and for coming along for the the newest adventure. As someone who's known Bill for uh, fifteen or twenty odd years now, I can assure you that nothing he does is ever uninteresting. So I don't expect uh, this latest venture to be uh, an exception to that rule. So thanks again for everyone uh, coming along. Look out this weekend for uh, Tom Dyson, your investment directors. Uh, uh, updates and Dan will be in touch with you early on in the new year but to everyone uh, between now and then go and get yourself a bottle of champagne I'm heading out to celebrate New Year's down here in uh, Patagonia in a couple of days and uh, we'll see you all again next time thank you very much thank you happy new year to you all